Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you're here today. It's almost a salubrious day, not quite, but it'll be getting more and more so. Some of you are really working on that word, aren't you? And you believe it now. Salubrious really is a word. I have a thing about words, language, the massacre of the English language. We used to call it the King's English. Um, and how beautiful it is when it's used correctly, although I don't hear that very often. So every once in a while, I have to scratch the itch and just say, oh, boy. So if you'll bear with me this morning, I want to share with you the 10 words and phrases that too many folks say incorrectly. Yay Yay is not one of them. The first is, supposedly. Now, don't laugh at these if you use these words. Be honest here. Because not everybody can laugh at all of these. I've heard you speak. And it's supposed to be, supposed to be, supposedly. So let's all say that word together. Supposedly. Wow, you're doing good already. Second one is, for all intensive purposes. And it's supposed to be, before he puts it up, what? <laughs> when you don't know the answer, you go, oh, this is, this. you kind of blend in with everybody else and like, yep, that's right. And it is, there you go. And this one is used by more people than any other, and probably 90% of the people in here use it. Not in here, they don't use it, but I mean, in their regular conversation. There's no such word, by the way, and the word is regardless. I'm in conversation a lot with a lot of people, and I hear that word so many times. And then, this is fairly well, uh, quite popular too. I want to say, well, do so then. (laughs) But what's it supposed to be? I couldn't care less. This one, too, and I know you coffee drinkers are going to laugh, but (laughs) a lot of this. I get a lot of this. Some of you are drinking espresso right now. That's why I ask people when they got the cup, I said, what are you drinking? I love to hear when they say, well, espresso. (laughs) And it is? Espresso. And then the next one is, we got about, yeah, we got 10 of these. That's a funny word to be using around here. We're on the Atlantic coast. And it's supposed to be? Specifically. Hold your teeth and say it. Seven? Etc. Mm. And it is supposed to be? What a class. What a class. This one... Don't laugh because it's used an awful lot in these necks of the woods. I seen it. Yeah, you see that? Yeah, I seen it. Good. And it would be? I saw it. That's right. And we've got a couple more, and they're dillies. Number nine is of utmost importance. And that should be what? utmost importance. Some of you aren't even catching it when we drop down to the right one, so I don't know what you're going to, I don't know how you're going to be explaining some of these things. And then the tenth one is, I just need to lay down, I'm so tired. You need to what? Mm-hmm. And I know you'll go home this afternoon after all this and want to lie down, but you'll probably say, oh, I've got to go lay down. In my last uh, message, the opening of this series, I began asking, by asking a few kind of probing questions uh, before I delved into the subject matter, and I'm going to follow that pattern today and just ask uh, a few questions, and uh, I don't want uh, verbal responses or any other uh, bodily response. I just want you to think about these questions, and I want you to internal and, uh, internalize and uh, personalize them as much as you can. The first question is, 
What would it be like to live in a world where there is absolutely no ultimate justice? None anywhere. And I wonder if you'd want to live in a place like that. Another question I have for all of us is, why is it so difficult for us to admit that we are wrong? <clears throat> Heads kind of dropped out of sight there. Don't look at your spouse. Just... <laughs> We're all in this together, folks. Next question is, where is hope as you read about the events of the world, even the last few days, even, say, the last week, the last seven days since we met? And you look out sometimes at this stuff and you say, where is there hope? What? Is there any hope? And then my last kind of series of questioning is, the end of your world <laughs> may come before the end of the world. Do you feel ready? Even right now. So I'd just like you to let those sink into your mind and into your heart. And we'll kind of use those questions as a platform on which to build. First, I want you to let me walk you through some areas of my life. First, I want you to walk with me into my study. And then, this is a scary thing, this is a different world. I want you to walk into my mind, and I want you to walk into my sermon preparation. Because I want to tell you that there are some really difficult aspects of our faith that are very tough to preach on. If you sit under preaching that's always happy, always makes you smile, always makes you feel just warm and fuzzy, you might want to check that preaching. If it never really convicts, if it never really makes you uncomfortable, if it never gets your attention because it makes you look into your own mirror, you need to check that preaching. I've chosen in recent weeks to give you a glimpse, and that's what it is. It's not a thorough, in-depth study, but a glimpse into the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has judgments. The book of Revelation has justice. The book of Revelation in detail deals with godless people and godless nations and the coming treatment of those folks. Topics which raise questions and answers which seem to prompt even more questions. And things like, for instance, I like this series that Pastor Todd's doing on, on the, the, the questions, the big hairy questions, because sometimes the questions come out like this. Well, how could God punish harmless, innocent people? Have you ever heard anybody ask that question? Have you ever heard of that question? Well, the answer to that is not complicated because that is not God's problem because there aren't any harmless, innocent people. There aren't any. God's problem is this. How can he forgive wicked sinners? And it's not a problem. He's already solved that one, as you well know. But that's the question to ask. How can his grace extend so far? How can his mercy be so everlasting? How can his love and his kindness and his forgiveness, how can that extend down to every last soul? Charles Schultz wrote this. See if you identify. Sometimes I lay awake at night and I ask, where have I gone wrong? And then a voice says to me, this is going to take more than one night. <laughs> well, how about teaching or preaching and explaining a subject like God's omniscience? God's the all-knowing, all-seeing, omniscient God. I mean, that's a pretty one right there. And I usually use this story to introduce that very heavy subject, God's omniscience. 
and God's omnipresence. The story of the group of children that was lining up for lunch in the cafeteria of a church primary school, and at the head of the table was was a bowl of juicy red apples. But the supervising teacher had written a note and placed it next to the apples, and the note said, take only one. God is watching. The other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate-coated biscuits. And some child had written a note and placed it next to that plate. And it said, take as many as you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) (laughs) Then the ever-present fear of all preachers... What if this sermon bombs and every preacher has preached a bad sermon? If you think you haven't and you're a preacher, you probably have preached a bunch of bad sermons and you're not even aware of it. Personally, I've preached well over 5,000 sermons. I guess it's a little closer to 6,000. Sometimes it won't just be a bad sermon, but a disaster. I'm talking train wreck. And when a sermon doesn't go well, you feel discouraged. I can't tell you how many years, every Monday morning, I wrote my resignation from the pastorate. I can't tell you because after a while, I didn't keep writing it. I just kept one in the desk drawer all the time, anticipating another train wreck. And if this despair is great enough, it could cause you to question whether you should even continue to preach at all. And I know a lot of guys who, uh, who have preached and just got to a place where they felt they just weren't getting it across and they walked out. But I don't think anyone, and I'd probably place money on this if I were a betting man, can top the disaster of John Newton's first sermon. He described it to a friend in a letter that he wrote the very next day. And I want to quote the letter to you. John Newton's words, quote, I set off tolerably well, though with no small fear and trembling, before I had spoken ten minutes, I was stopped like Hannibal upon the, upon the Alps. My ideas forsook me. Darkness and confusion filled up their place. I stood on a precipice and could not advance one step forward. I stared at the people and they at me. Not a word more could I speak, but was forced to come down and leave the people, some smiling Many weeping. My pride and self-sufficiency were solely mortified. End of quote. I read that, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it over, and I just read it to you. Imagine if John Newton, one of the most celebrated pastors, preachers, hymn composers, letter writers in the last 400 years, took that one bad sermon as affirmation that he just should not preach. How tragic would that have been? Tell me, we would have never sung, we would have never sung, we would have never sung Amazing Grace. Can you imagine if the world had never heard that song, not even once? Most of our first sermons were bad. Uh, Mine wasn't. It was four days long. We still have people sitting in those pews, I think, from 40-some years ago, waiting for it to get over. Um, The thing that shocked me most, and I've told a few of you this in the past, is that the whole world didn't get saved that day. And I'm still trying to reconcile that in my mind. Because it was a phenomenal sermon. And I can't even imagine any unsaved person not coming to Christ that day. But it was, um, it got progressively, well, I don't know, one or the other, better or worse from there. And um, 
It was quite a, it was quite a first sermon. It really was. And um, so many of us have preached a bad sermon. And if you ever had a chance to preach and you felt like you preached a bad sermon, welcome to the club. Uh, most pastors lay eggs even after years of preaching. You can just lay an egg some Sunday and just like, that was bad. Our sovereign God, I'm saying all this to say, to say something. The old preacher said, I want to say a few words before I start speaking. Um, our sovereign God doesn't use perfect preachers. I know this, this is going to blow some theories here, but it's going to disappoint a lot of you. But God doesn't use perfect preachers. Huh? Our perfect God doesn't use perfect sermons. Instead, he uses imperfect, broken jars of clay to proclaim his perfect word, and the Spirit uniquely works through this design. So let's give him glory in the church this morning, and let's lift him up and praise him. Because it's not about me, it's not about any preacher, it's not about a sermon, it's all about him. God's mercies are new every morning, aren't you glad? And that includes this morning. And that includes preaching ministry. And it includes every other area of Christian service and Christian living. Folks, we need to embrace our brokenness, and we need to always recognize our need to grow from whatever experience we are in. And I said all that, really, to say that some things are tough to preach. And when you're speaking from the book of Revelation, that's no picnic. Um, by the way, speaking of bad sermons and, and tough sermons and all the rest of it, I have to just say, uh, you know, be vain for a moment. The majority of, uh, of my sermons that I've preached, a very small handful of you, dear folks, have been most gracious witnesses. <laughs> and uh, you've been witness to some homiletical disasters, actually. And I have to thank you for hanging in there. And if you haven't noticed, then just leave your hearing aid alone and everything will be fine. I'm in a series right now called The Back of the Book. And it's centered on the book of Revelation, but it's all over. So if you have your Bible or your app or whatever device you're using, uh, we're going to be in Revelation, but we're going to be in several other addresses as well. This is the second in this series, and this morning a message entitled, God's Patience in Judgment. See, in the book of Revelation, there are three major judgments that come to the earth. The first wave of judgment is found in Revelation chapter 6. You don't need to turn there right now. That's called the seal judgment. Those seals unfold as the lamb breaks the seals of the scroll. And as each seal is broken, it unleashes a new barrage of God's judgment against an evil and Christ-rejecting world. Then in the 8th chapter of Revelation, another round of judgments begin, and that's when the angels blow the seven trumpets. Some of you have read the book of Revelation, and you, you've read a lot of this uh, allegorical language and, and, and very uh, graphic stuff, and you've wondered, well, what does that mean, and what, what period of time is that going to be in, and so on. Hope to clarify some of that for you today. So that's known as the seven trumpets judgment. And then finally... In chapter 16, we have the bowl judgments, and this has nothing to do with college football, all right? And it, it begins in chapter 16, as the final measure of God's wrath is poured out on a world which refuses to budge from its position of willful unbelief. Each series of these judgments is worse than the other, and the bowls complete the work during the Great Tribulation period, We'll speak about that later, just prior to the return of Christ. Now, it's not a very pleasant subject, the judgment of God. It's not a very uh, pleasant subject to read about or to preach about. I mean, the carrying out of God's judgment on the world. Because included in that, there are plagues, there are famines, there's war, there's death. I mean, it's a very gruesome scene. You're glad you're here this morning. There is great suffering in the world as a result of what God is doing. By the way, 
the suffering in the world today, and there's a lot of it, and I'm not ever going to downplay that. There is a lot of it. But it's very minuscule compared to what's coming according to the book of Revelation. Great suffering in the world. And where's the suffering coming from? Well, it comes as a result of what God is doing at that time. There are going to be many questions surrounding God's activity. And you could read it and have questions yourself right now. If this is going to happen, what's his purpose in all of this? Great question. And, and it seems so terrible. And, and why would a loving God do these things which cause such misery and pain? As I told you earlier, that's not really God's problem. Now let me make several points today. And the first is, the purpose of these judgments is, number one, to bring people to repentance. If you get this understood, and if you get this established and firmly planted in your mind, you'll be okay with everything else you read in the book of Revelation. The purpose is redemptive. It's an effort to get people to turn from their sin and turn to God so that they might live and live forever. We need to remember that the Lord said this in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So it never has been and never will be God's intent to see people suffer or to see people hurt. Well, it's, it's all about redeeming them. It's all about bringing them back to him. It's all, about, it's, it's all about them repenting and getting right with God. And the call to this kind of redemptive repentance is found throughout the whole book of Revelation. You can't read a page in the Revelation without that theme reoccurring. Jesus warned the churches right in the third chapter in, in the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He warned the churches in the very beginning. In Revelation 3, 19, he said, Those whom I love, listen to this, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You say, well, I'm going through some discipline right now, and I think God's rebuking me. And I, Well, you know what? That's a proof that God loves you. That's a proof that God doesn't want to lose you. That's a proof that he's trying to get your attention and wants you to have nothing but abundant life and life everlasting. And so don't look at that as something that's final, as something that's going to destroy you, but rather something that can make you stronger. So you see, as these judgments are being carried out, it's the express purpose of the judgments to turn people around from their sin life so that God can turn from carrying out his judgment against their sin and forgive them for all their sin. This is the redemptive purpose of God. He wants to save. Always, 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 when you ask that question or you hear it asked, the answer is God wants to save people, not harm them. God wants to bring them back, not drive them further away, right? The purpose of the judgments is redemptive. It's not punitive. God seeks, through all these measures, to correct, not merely, uh, parents, parents of children, listen, not merely to punish. Whenever you discipline your child, the end goal ought to be correction and restoration. That's the godly example. God desires reconciliation, not retribution. In fact, the word for punish, this is interesting, is found only one time in the entire book of Revelation. And it's over in chapter 17, verse 1. And there it is speaking about the punishment of the great prostitute who represents the evil one world government of the end times, which is coming. It's fast approaching. What is interesting is that there is a sense of wonder on the part of the inhabitants of heaven that the people of earth are experiencing all these judgments, and this is looking forward, and yet they still remain willfully and stubbornly rebellious. 
in chapter 9 of Revelation, verses 20 and 21, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Kind of got it all there, didn't he? There is a sense of amazement that the judgments didn't produce the intended effect. In fact, people only seem to harden their hearts further. And this will happen as we approach and get into those final days. In Revelation 16, 9, we read that they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God. It's getting serious now. These people are just blaming God that they're being reminded of their sin. And so they cursed the name of God who had control over their plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Their willful rebellion and their stubborn refusal to submit their hearts to God who gave them life in the first place and acknowledge that he is the king of the universe. Hello? Demonstrates their appropriateness of God's judgment. A wonderful message last week in Pastor Todd's series on all the questions that he dealt with the subject of knowing and doing and understanding God's will. It was excellent, absolutely excellent. If you haven't heard it, get online and listen or download it or get the CD, whatever. I strongly recommend it. I want to add, and this is not adding to anything he said or taught or anything different. Uh, that was just a complete message and, a, and done in a wonderful way. But I wanted to add my thought on this whole thing of the will of God because there's an aspect sometimes we overlook, and that is our stubbornness. Our stubbornness in regard to, the, to surrendering our wills to the will of God is a major problem of the human family. And I always give God glory that when I preach this, especially here, that I can just say things like that, and I know it doesn't affect anybody here. And I know it wouldn't even include anybody here. Just somebody might be standing, not sitting. Our stubbornness in regard to surrendering our wills to the will of God is a major problem of the human family. Do you have a child in your home that is two years of age or under, or ever was? Okay. Here's the warning of Scripture. Romans 2, 5 through 8. Some of you are following along there. That's great. But because of your stubbornness, <laughs> here it is right here. It's, 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 I mean, it's addressed. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his, oh boy, Righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and who follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Yeah. Interesting, that word stubbornness. I can't kind of get around that one this time, and I, 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 I'm not going to dismiss it. <laughs> In the original language, this word, the root of this word, comes from the word scleros. And scleros, in the original language, means callous, or hard. Huh. We actually use it quite often in a word that maybe you've heard of. Anybody want to take a stab at this one? I got to hear you. I can't just. 
Medical people? You don't know where I'm going here? What do you call it? Oh, let's go with something more than scleroderma. Arterial. Arterial. Okay, good. I'm going to go back to the ten words. Um, Arteriosclerosis. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, three people have. Um, it's a medical term. I thought, I thought it was in, in more uh, common use. It's a medical term for the thickening and hardening of the arteries. Well, that's not the end of it. Which blocks... Also called circulation. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm not just doing this to see who knows the Greek and who knows all that stuff. I knew a little Greek one time. He ran a restaurant. But um, no, I just, I'm doing this because I want you to see the connection here of the words. The word stubborn is in Scripture, it's part of what I'm teaching you right now. And the root of that word is skleros. And the meaning of that word is callous or hard. And from that word, like from the Greek and Latin, we get many of the medical terms. We have a term called arteriosclerosis, which is the hardening or the thickening of arteries that causes heart attacks, all kinds of stuff. But it causes a lack of circulation. Now, stubbornness, stay with me. Results when we have callous hearts. And then we harden our hearts toward God. I see people do this all the time. And then after a while we find no room or need for God, so we don't need repentance either. Stay with me. And the circulation of the Spirit of God in our lives is then blocked. You get in the relation? With that in mind, let's take a look at the second person, uh, purpose of the judgments. To demonstrate the patience of God. The really amazing thing is that God does not exercise this kind of judgment against our sin on a daily basis. And all I can say to that is, whoo! Hallelujah. God doesn't exercise this type of judgment on our sin on a daily basis. Aren't you glad? Amen. How many care? Okay, seven people care. But the rest of you, I got to tell you, you need to get glad about this. I'm going to say it one more time. God doesn't exercise this type of judgment on our sin on a daily basis. Say, I don't know who you're talking to, Bob. We're all Christians. Oh, that's right. Christians don't sin. (laughs) What is wrong with me? Hmm. I'm just so glad that he doesn't show this kind of judgment on a daily basis, or even a monthly basis, or even on an annual basis, because I deserve it. I'm not going to speak for you, but I deserve it. Judgment means that the abuse which human beings have practiced against each other for their own selfish purposes will one day meet with justice. People say, oh yeah, there's lots of law, there's lots of this, there's lots of that in the world, there's just no justice. Oh yeah, there's justice, and oh yeah, there's going to be a lot of justice. Hang on. What is also amazing is that God is willing to wait to bring about his final justice. And of course, he did not. If he did not, there wouldn't be one of us that survives. Aren't you glad he waits? Aren't you glad in judgment he has patience? He's different. He acts differently than we do. And that's good. 
In fact, in the second chapter of Revelation, Jesus reprimands the church of Thyatira for tolerating a female false prophet who is advocating sexual immorality as being a part of an acceptable lifestyle for a Christian. And she is a threat to the whole church spiritually. But Jesus said in Revelation 2, 21 and 22, directly addressing that, he said, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Now, if the patience of God is seen in that he gives us a chance, always gives us a chance to turn from our sin and turn to him. And he would be just if he didn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. But he is willing to wait He gives us time to turn. How long did he give you to turn around? How long did he give you to get back on track when you knew you were off track? I mean, even the worst of people, he gives them time to turn. That's his patience in judgment. Thank God for it. And I'm very glad to report that to you this morning. Add this fact. Write this down if you're making notes. God is far more patient with other people than we are. Yes? I, I like when people say to me, well, I say, well, just be patient. With well, I'm patient uh, to a point. Then I get in the scripture and I go to the concordance. I'm like, to a point, to a point, to a point. Where is that in scripture? I don't, I don't see that in the character of God. I see grace. I see mercy. I see kindness. I see love. I see forgiveness. I I don't see to a point. See, you should never look down on someone else unless you're lifting them up. See, broken crayons are still colors. And you and I were broken once, too. Matter of fact, possibly more than once. How long did he wait? How many chances did he give you to make the turn, to do the about phase, to get back on the rails. Huh? So God is far more patient with other people than we are. There's an old Hebrew story. I love this story about Abraham. He's sitting outside his tent one night, and he saw an old man walking in the distance. And So Abraham rushed out to, to greet him, and he invited him into his tent. And he washed the old man's feet, which was a custom then, and he placed before him something to eat and to drink, and immediately the old man took the food and began to put it into his mouth without giving thanks to God, and Abraham said, what? Aren't you going to pray and give thanks to God for his goodness? And the weary old man said, no, no, I worship only fire and no reverence to any God. And Abraham became full of righteous indignation. And he grabbed the old man and he pulled him to his feet and he began to shove him out into the cold of the night. And a while later, God called his old friend Abraham and said to him, Abraham, where is the stranger whom you invited in to share your food and lodging? And Abraham said this to God. Oh, I cast him far from me, for he did not worship you and he did not follow your laws. And then God said in a low voice, Abraham, I have put up with him these 80 years, although he dishonors me, and you couldn't endure him for one night? Hello, church. Hello, Christian. Hello, ever-judging legalist. Hey, remember the story of Jonah? Classic. God was patient with the people of Nineveh. He'd endured their evil rebellion, their violence for years and years and years. And then he asked Jonah to go and preach to them that they might be saved and so that he could avert his justice and give them a chance to turn. But Jonah was angry that God wanted to spare them and he refused to go to Nineveh. He preferred to spend some time in the belly of a great fish rather than help 
the Ninevites escaped the coming judgment of God. Think about it. We wonder still about God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we forget. God waited until the situation became hopeless. Don't forget that Abraham begged God. He kept going back to God. He kept going back to God. He kept going back to God. And then in Genesis 18, 32, he's begging God now. And he wants God to do something. And he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, for the sake of ten, God said, I will not destroy it. Well, for the sake of ten. But there weren't ten. And only then did God send his judgment upon them. Hey, even in the days of Noah. How many remember the story of Noah? What, what do you remember about that? Noah and yeah, Noah and the flood. That, that. And I know we do that. We do that kind of stuff. Rahab the harlot. See, see how deranged we are? <laughs> no, and I say that because Rahab is in the line of the Savior. Rahab is in the blood lineage of Jesus Christ. Rahab saving the spies is a picture of Jesus Christ saving you and me. But what do we call her still all these years later? Rahab the harlot. I think she's known for something more than that. I think Noah's story is known for something more than a flood. Yeah, it's Noah in the flood. But let's see what else. In the days of Noah, prior to that great, great liquidation, God wanted the people to turn. He wanted them to turn from the error of their ways. This was a sinful, sinful. We think it's bad now. Listen, this was repulsive to the very sight of God. And he says, I have no choice but to destroy the race. He was questioning himself. What have I done here? Why have I created these monsters? He waited. Listen to this. How many know how long he waited? How long did he wait after he announced it was going to be a flood come? Flood, nobody knew what a flood was because it had never rained. You're building a boat for what? 120 years. And somebody told me, I didn't know this till recently, but somebody told me the reason it was 120 years, it took the snails that long to get on board. <laughs> you see, see, it's not just Noah and the flood. Folks, listen to me. It's God wanting the people to turn from the error of their ways. And for a hundred, God, love them, for a hundred and twenty years, that's three times as long as I've been preaching, Noah preached to the people. And here's what the Bible says in 1 Peter 3.20. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. This is scripture we're reading. While the ark was being built, in it only a few people. How many? Eight in all. Let me just say this. Who, who got saved? Who are the eight that got saved? Noah's family. Let me tell you something, my friend. You can be interested in the salvation of this entire globe, but the most important unit to you is your own family. Make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure. I've got to tell you, this was one man full of glory to God week and a half, two weeks ago, when our fourth little grandchild, Ryan, announced that he wanted to accept the Lord and made our family circle complete, and we're going to all be in heaven together. Hallelujah. Man, he was telling everybody. Oh, for more childlike faith. They, 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 they don't, they, they don't, they don't clutter it up with all the junk that we carry around. It's just straightforward. I believe it. This is the truth. 
I want Jesus. It's wonderful. So Noah's preaching and nothing's happening. And the people are still refusing. And they were all lost except for eight people. And that was his family. I'm telling you that even after 120 years of good evangelistic preaching, God saved all who could be saved. And I say that because that's the way it's going to be at the end of the world. And we have to be patient until that time. Boy, it's hard. People ask all the time. Do you think we're in the last days? Do you think this is the the dawning? Do you think we're now seeing the foreshadow of the coming of Christ? Can't be very long, Bob. You know what? They were saying that the week after Jesus was resurrected. Some of you that were following the AD series earlier this year. You know, that was John and that was Thomas. And they were saying, well, come on. He said he's coming back. He should be here anytime now. Wow, and that was only 2,000 years ago. All I can tell you is we're 2,000 years closer. Hmm. The Bible says again in Romans 9, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? These next two words. Even us! And this is written to the church, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, thank you, Lord, but also from the Gentiles. What if God just spared that judgment falling on us so that we would have time to turn, repent, come to him, and be part of the family? I'll drink to that. Wow. Now, fasten your seatbelt because we're getting into some serious stuff here as we bring it down. Brings me to the third and final point, and that is the third purpose of the judgments in Revelation is to establish God's justice. I said there'd be justice. Now, we who live in a country like we do has a lot of freedom, a lot of privileges, a lot of protection under the law. i got to tell you, we don't feel like other people feel when they read about God's judgment, (laughs) the end of the world. Because if there was no law here and we didn't live under the rule of law, you'd long for justice every day. And you know what? People in many, many, many other parts of the world do long for justice. If you had no rights and you were oppressed all the time by those who had power over you, if you lived where, where, where others could just come and take your property or abuse your family, no recrimination, nobody has to answer to anybody, you would welcome the judgment of God. That would settle the score, wouldn't it? And if you were powerless, you would long for God to come to your defense. And if there were no judges or courts, then you would long for somebody before whom you could stand and plead your case so that you might receive justice. During World War II and before, when the Jews were being systematically annihilated and no one seemed to care, They cried out for justice. These people pleaded for justice. Germany was gathering them up and placing them in ghettos and eventually into death camps and eventually into the ovens. And the European countries would not allow any of them to immigrate. In other words, they couldn't come into any of those other countries. And when they got to the border stations, they were turned away. And by the way, not to let ourselves off the hook, the United States pretended not to even notice. We've got some answering to do as a nation, too. And the Jews suffered more than any group of people in history before or since, and no one came to their defense until it was almost too late. Of course, you know it'll never be too late, because God will always have his people, right? Right? 
God always has had his remnant. It was carefully planned genocide. And they were looking for justice. And they looked left and they looked right. And they looked up and they looked down and they looked ahead. There was no justice anywhere. They couldn't find it. Nobody came to their defense. Finally, when the nations of the world did decide to bring judgment against Germany and liberated the Jews from the death camps, there was a global sigh of relief. As though the world had been set right. By the way, when that happened, uh, he wasn't a Jewish man, but I have an uncle who was set free at the same time from a German POW camp where he had spent 33 months. Uh, let me just tell you that global sigh of relief as though the world was now up, upright and sitting on its axis, that is the way it will be in the end. God's justice is coming, and it will be done against the cruelties and the injustices and the violence of the world. And those who have perpetuated them, let me tell you something, and let me let us all know, God takes sin seriously. I often wonder, and I hope you'll indulge me here for a moment or two before I close this message. I often wonder, perhaps we have so overreacted to the past where only hellfire and damnation were preached. And some people, and a lot of people, probably got into the kingdom out of fear that we have swung too far to the other side and believing, well, sin is not really that serious a thing, and God's not really going to judge it like the old hellfire and damnation preachers used to say. I got to tell you, that'd be a very serious mistake to make. Very serious. We will all stand before one form of judgment or another. There are several judgments coming. There's a judgment of the nations, there's the Bema judgment, or the judgment seat of Christ for all Christians. That's when you're going to give an account to the Lord of what you've done with your life from the moment of salvation to the end of your life. And then there's the final judgment, which is the great white throne judgment. I'm hoping none of you have an invitation to that, because that's where the unsaved world is going to finally be judged. What am I saying? I'm saying we need to be careful because we're all going to give an account of our lives to God. Nobody's going nobody's to escape giving an account. The Bible says this in Hebrews 9 and 27. Man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. We all belong to God in one sense, whether we want to acknowledge that we do, that's another matter. But the fact remains that we are all accountable to our Creator. The whole world is accountable. The time is quickly coming when we'll have to render that account to God. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Rendering an account to our Creator. See, the judgments in this book are an important part of God's plan to overcome the world's evil with good. Justice will come to injustice. Righteousness will be rewarded. God will expose evil for what it is and show his power over it. God will reclaim the world. Hallelujah. The hope that justice is coming is a source, and ought to be, a source of joy for those who are remaining faithful to him. The Bible says once again in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time, Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. At that time. Don't judge ahead of yourself. Don't jump ahead of God. And this admonishment here is that we must be ready for the day. Here's what the Bible says. I love saying those words. The Bible says. 
the Bible says. I love standing before a group of people and saying, well, the Bible says. The Bible says. doesn't matter what anybody else says, does it? That's what the Bible says. Stay true to your sources, folks. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 10. And you'll read right along. But the day of the Lord will come, how? Like a thief. And the heavens will disappear with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live, what? Holy, godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Wow. That's what the Bible says. And here's what Jesus said in the Bible in Matthew 24, starting at verse 42. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Hmm. But understand, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. He would not have let his house be broken into. Hmm. So you also must be ready. Underline those words. Must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. In May of 1984... The National Geographic issue for that time displayed colored photos and drawings and artist depictions of the volcanic destruction that wiped out the Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. I know some of you don't remember that. It was in A.D. 79. Mount Vesuvius erupted. That was so sudden that people were killed in the middle of their daily routine. I'm not putting these up to scare you. I'm just stating some facts here. Men and women were at the market. The wealthy were in their luxurious baths. The slaves were still in their labor. And they died as they watched and were covered by volcanic ash and superheated gases. Uh, by the way, Vesuvius is still, still one of the most dangerous volcano, volcanoes in the world. It's the only active volcano on the European mainland. No, uh, it's, it's, it's considered an active volcano, although it's been over 100 years since it erupted in any way. But that day, or two days actually, it spewed a deadly cloud of volcanic gas, stones, and ash. Listen to this. To a height of 21 miles ejecting uh, molten rock at the rate of 1.5 million tons per second. Ultimately, listen to this, releasing 100,000 times the thermal energy of the Hiroshima bombing. I mean, towns and villages were obliterated. Nobody got out. People 20 miles away were running for their lives. Thousands were buried alive, incinerated, suffocated, and it actually set off a mild tsunami in the Bay of Naples. The thing that um, really amazes me, just to step off for a moment, is that today over 3 million people live in the exact vicinity of Mount Vesuvius in, in that part of Italy. It's just unbelievable. Anyway, it's hard to imagine the horror of that day. And that's why I'm, I was bringing this uh, in as an example. But here's the saddest part. See, there's a message here. And this is the part I wanted to share with you. This is the saddest part, is that not one single person had to die when Vesuvius blew its top. Scientists tell us that the ancient Roman writers recorded weeks of rumblings and other signs which preceded the actual explosion. There was even a threatening pillar of smoke which came out of the mountain, which could be clearly seen several days, several days, several days before the eruption. If only, listen to this, they had paid attention to Vesuvius's warnings. If only, if only, if 
only. Dear people, there are similar warnings that God is giving to us, and we are told in Scripture about what to expect. We are, to be, we are accountable to God, number one. We are warned to be prepared. There is a coming day of judgment. We do not need to be unprepared. There is a way to avoid the coming judgment. And I'll close with this. But we must be ready. Patience in judgment. For a minute, just let's talk ready. Are you ready? Can you confidently sit there today and say, it doesn't really matter to me when it is? Because I know whom I've trusted, and I know where I'm going. And I know where I'm ending up. There's no question about it. Because I've put my confident faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from anything that would even look like the judgment that's been described. Are you ready? If you're not ready, today would be a great day to get ready. And I'm just going to bring to your attention the little connect card that's probably in the seat pocket next to you or near you or behind you or in front of you. If you don't have one, turn around and ask someone for one, whatever you need. And there are all kinds of different decisions that can be made there, and there's all kinds of things that you can indicate. All we'd like to know is your name (laughs) and what decision you're making. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, and you've never just laid it out on the line, and you've never said, you know, I want to be free of all this. I don't want to taste any of this judgment. Because as you know, when Christ does appear, those who love him and follow him will be going up with him. And we'll be safe from all of this. Don't wait. Don't wait. Because we must be ready. If you're not ready, you didn't come in here ready. You weren't ready when I started this message, but you say, yeah, I want to be ready. Take action today and get ready. Can we just listen to and watch and get the message of this video that we're going to play and then we're going to continue our worship of God. God bless you. Thank you for being patient. Bless you. Treasures of wisdom and 